introduced to Jared Leto when I watched Fight Club. Like in person? Oh, as an actor. Oh, okay. I, was... I, I have not met Jared Leto as of yet. I was about to say, I, <laughs> if you want to talk about the trauma you experienced, this is the right platform to do so. No, no, but, but the first time I ever saw him was uh, in Fight Club, where Edward Norton uh, hideously like disfigures him Yeah. in that fight. And there's like that line where it's like, I just wanted to destroy something beautiful. Right, yeah. And then, the next time I saw him in a film... Was American Psycho. Literally a year later, yeah. Well, I did. Uh, I might have watched him a year apart. Anyway, the point is he's butchered in that brutally. True. And these are both like critically acclaimed and, and very culturally relevant movies. Same year, by the way, as American Psycho, Requiem for a Dream. In which terrible things also happened <laughs> yes. to Jared Leto. Yes. Also a critically acclaimed, uh, much beloved film. Not a critically acclaimed or much beloved film is Mo- Mobius Strip, <laughs> The Living Vampire, 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. Not a critically acclaimed film is uh, The Suicide Squad. Okay, well... What do these things have it's, in common? It's, first of all, that particular film is simply called Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad is the one that It's a good movie. Yeah, yeah, Sans yeah. Jared Leto. Exactly. exactly. Anyway, what I'm getting at here is people don't want to watch Jared Leto as a character who wins. They want to see Jared Leto get brutalized. Mm-hmm. Or they want to see him get emotionally terrorized like he was in American, not American Horror Story, uh, House, <laughs> House of Gucci. Yeah, but you, you, you bring up a good point. This is a, a unifying theory of where Jared Leto works. It's Paolo. It's, I, do, uh, it's, I do not <laughs> like to watch the Jared Leto movies. His character as Paolo in House of Gucci is one of the all-time great American characters, um, as we know. And... Uh, and him and Blade Runner, I think, also works because A, he's in it for two scenes, and B, he's playing a horrible, unlikable scumbag, and that's why he works in that movie. It seems like Hollywood just is not getting it. We don't want to see him as the very likable and iconic character of Dr. Michael Morbius. We don't want this. We want him to be um, a, either a scumbag or uh, or somebody who is just stepped on by life and society. That's all he deserves as an actor, I think. That's the role we collectively, as cultural critics, have typecast him in. And it's time he takes the hint, and it's time Hollywood big shots take the hint. That if Jared Leto is going to be on your screen, and he's like a Sean Bean type situation, where you know something bad is going to happen to him, and his life will be cut short horribly. The entertainment uh, from watching Jared Leto on the screen is, is, is to know that something will happen and not knowing what it will be, I think. So, yeah, you're, you're on to something here. You're on to something. And I, I fear, though, that Jared Leto will probably come back from, from this Morbius debacle. Uh, I think his career will survive. And why do you think that is? Do you think he, like, had... Isn't he, like, involved in some weird sex cult? Do you think he's, like, honey-potted some Hollywood big shots? He I has, think like, that, footage of them in precarious uh, positions? I think there's a very, very, very... Uh, I think it's a possibility. I'll say that without getting into details, possibly uh, putting myself into litigious uh, territory. I'm going to say that you're probably onto something with that one as well. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. But if we're going to be talking about failures that didn't ruin careers here at our sh- the show that we are on. Uh, Which is the shock doctrine. Correct. With Andrew. And, and Nick. And Nick. Yes. Um, and here on the Schlock Doctrine, we do talk about failures. Today, we will not be talking about Morbius the Living Vampire, but we are talking about a movie that came out and people probably would have thought would have killed the careers of everyone involved. But, in fact, it was just a bump in the road to uh, very lar- much larger and much more successful features. Uh, the movie is Crime Wave from 1985. No, we're doing the 86 version. <laughs> Is IMDb incorrect? IMDb is wrong. The oh, 1985 no. one is the one about like the the insane author or some shit. You're right. Okay, so, so there, <laughs> there are two versions of crime. This is a Jack Frost situation where there are two versions of Crime Wave. Uh, one came out one year after the other, 
And there's a third crime wave that came out in like 1956. My God. Jack Frost, though, almost directed by Sam Raimi, who was the director of Crime Wave. Of Crime Wave, yeah. Yes. And the writers, um, two other unknowns, Joel and Ethan Cohen. Unknown at the time. Now much beloved. Well, even They're then, really, they, really... they weren't really unknown at this time either. They already had Blood Simple under uh, under their belt. Oh, I thought they came out after this. No, I believe uh, Blood Simple was their first feature. Oh, okay. And, you know, it did well in the sun. Sundance Circuit, in a, in kind of a similar way that the Evil Dead, uh, Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead did well in that uh, in other festival circuits, and then they combined their powers to make this crime wave. And let me just read a quote that before we get into it properly, that Sam Raimi said about the movie Crime Wave, uh, about his intentions as far as what he wanted it to be. Quote: I wanted it to be the ultimate picture of entertainment, to thrill, to chill. I wanted to make the audience laugh, cry, scream. They screamed for their money back. Ah, that's good. Yes. And now it is going to be up to you, the audience, that uh, is this assessment of the movie Crime Wave fair? Um, is the movie a, a, a secret classic? With so much talent involved, how could things have gone so wrong? All these questions will be answered when we talk about the movie Crime Wave. Uh, I, I assume that the plot, rundown will be probably be pretty short because it's a pretty the, i mean the plot itself is mostly shenanigans it's, it's mostly shenanigans it's mostly tom so Ford. i think my notes are mostly just the shenanigans i found most amusing yes all right so do we want to do that first or yeah let's just let's get into that first this is um this is an ishtar type thing where the behind the scenes details are sort of what gives this uh gives this movie its sort of reputation and and its most interesting bits i think Okay, so here we go. Yes. Shall we just set the scene? Early Cohen Brothers writing credit here. Mm -hmm. This is Sam Raimi, uh, hot off of Evil Dead 2. Oh, yeah. Well, no, hot off of Evil Dead. The oh, Evil, Evil Dead. Dead. Correct. Hot off of the original Evil Dead. Yes. This is Bruce Campbell coming up with his buddy Sam Raimi. Mm -hmm. They're like best pals. High school pals. Relegated, unfortunately, to sort of a bit part in this, this particular film. And then uh, I don't remember any of the leads' names. The lead, I have so them all they listed went on here. To do uh, a whole lot of nothing, I think. For the, you are correct for the most part. I guess there's Louise Lasser, who consistently seems to be the top build, and from what I can tell, that's simply because of her involvement with uh, with some TV show. Uh, she was also married to to Woody Allen, or was dating Woody Allen. She was in a Woody Allen movie. Are you aware of this one, the movie called uh, Bananas? No. Where Woody Allen seems to play some kind of leftist guerrilla revolutionary. That does sound fun, though. It might be fun. It might be a disaster. Who knows? We should check it out someday. Uh, but she's in a show called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. That seems to be what she's most known for. Oh, also, she shows up in the movie Happiness. So if that's like what you're most known for, I don't know if your career can be described as in terms of mainstream success. We also have the the main guy here, Reed Burney, who plays the character of Vic Ajax, and he uh, this movie the experience was so fucking uh, wrought with uh, with frustrations and suffering that he decided to retire for a little bit. But then he came back and decided that uh, he was going to try acting again, and he was in like House of Cards and mostly bit parts in TV shows and stuff. You know, respectable, respectable acting. Everyone else, well, obviously we know what happened with Bruce Campbell. Essentially, became a star in his own way. Much beloved. Much despite beloved. Despite never really uh, reaching that leading man status nope. that a man of his chiseled look, good looks, uh, deserved. I think. But I agree. But he, I mean, he got. I mean, he's he's a star like in certain pockets of society, uh, and that's that's really all you need. In fact, if anything, he has a very enviable position because he can walk into one room and people just treat him like he's a normal person, and then he can walk into another and everyone will know who he is, and he, he's treated like a, essentially a god. And then the only other people that I think I know from anywhere are the guys that play the two goons. Uh, it's funny that you should mention Br Blade Runner 2049 because Brian James, uh, who played the, the, the smaller goon, was in the original Blade Runner. Uh, he played the the replicant at the beginning that's being, uh, that's being audited or whatever. If you oh, very good. Very good. Yes, and... Paul L. Smith as the big guy, the big boy. Uh, he played Bluto in the uh, Popeyes movie, the Robert Altman one with Robin Williams. 
that that's on the the to watch list. It certainly uh, is. Like a lookout for in the future. <laughs> Fucking Robin Williams Popeye movie. Man, oh man, I'm excited to give. It's a musical too. So I'm, and and some of the songs were was re, were uh, reincorporated into Punch Drunk Love. Did you that's, know that? I did not. Yeah, kind of interesting, right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, what a double feature that is. <laughs> Punch Drunk Love and Popeye. I, I'm I'm willing to give it a shot. Uh, I mean, he looks like Bluto. He, he look. This man looks like a living cartoon character, and that's very appropriate for what the the tone of this movie ends up being. Is just that it's just a cartoon. All right, yeah. Let's so get the plot. let's let's jump in. So we are, our opening shots are uh, it's it's a Cadillac full of nuns, gunning it down the street, mm-hmm. swerving and and skidding around, and they're on their way to an execution at the Hudsucker State Pen. Mm-hmm. Now this is fun because uh, the Coens made that that movie uh, Hudsucker Proxy. Correct, and they're actually in the scene. Are they the nuns? No, no, but. Playing a nun is uh, their their roommate at the time, uh, Frances McDormand. Uh, she plays one of the nuns. I missed that. Yes, uh, she's just like in the background. It's like her second role or something. Uh, but they they are in the jailhouse uh, of the Hudsucker place, and they are play the uh, photographers essentially. Oh, okay. The ones that are taking the pictures of the execution that's about to oh, happen. Very nice. Yes. I like how even to this day, there's like this this great camaraderie between like. Campbell, Ramey, and the Coens, where they're just like constantly popping up in it's, each other's shit. Yeah, they are, and yet it's not something that's so obvious that if you're just a, a regular casual moviegoer and you maybe know of the movies of the Coen brothers and perhaps like the Spider-Man movies or other Sam Raimi projects, you wouldn't know that they're related. No, I don't know what the Coens look like, really. I don't know what Sam Raimi looks like. Well, Sam Raimi just looks like a white guy, I suppose. You know, just kind of a nerdy guy, you know? Yeah. Sounds like one too. Yeah, Sounds like a fucking dweeb. <laughs> anyway, they're they're off to uh, seemingly prevent the execution of a one uh, Victor Ajax, who is like this little nebbish guy. He reminds me of like young Matthew Broderick, but like mixed with Matthew Lillard. Those are the <laughs> vibes I get from this guy. Uh, what are the vibes that I get from this guy? I wouldn't say that either of those popped into my mind. I think. I mean, he's this type of this character reminds me more of a Rick Moranis type character. Okay, I could see that. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. he's like a total. Well, he's like a total dweeb, just like a, a G Wiz type of guy. An old G Wiz, a G Williger's type of dweeb. Yeah, so he is on death row, and they're about to march him off to his execution, but he's pleading his innocence. Mm-hmm. And so we get a flashback as Ajax is is telling his side of the story. Right. I should say he he's on. Uh, about to be executed for uh, supposedly committing uh, a series of murders. Mm-hmm. And he is going to tell us what really happened. So yes. we get a flashback to uh, a, the co-owner of a security business that he works for plotting to sell the business to uh, a character named Ronaldo, as portrayed by Bruce Campbell, who's going to turn it into like a very highfalutin Vegas-style strip club, it looks like. Who, for me... Um unsurprisingly, uh, is is essentially the only guy whose performance in this is pitch perfect, in my opinion. Campbell? Where, yes, yeah. Campbell. Where his uh, his presence works, um, he's playing exactly correct. He's not doing. He's not overdoing it. He's not underdoing, which I feel like pretty much everyone else in this is doing one or the other. Yeah, there's like this good scene uh, where they're like blowing smoke rings at each other, like trying to show off, and then Bruce Campbell blows one that becomes like a sexy dancing lady. Uh, yes, yes, yes. That's that's kind of the first instance where you know that this movie is not operating on any kind of like objective reality. No, this is like full of like cartoon physics. Like I midway through, or not even midway through, I reached a point where it's just like this is like Roger Rabbit sans yeah. the cartoons. You know, this is just like yeah, this is like a sixties cartoon. Like yeah, it's like Chuck Jones starring type real stuff. people. Yeah, the fuck for is sure. Chuck Jones. Chuck jo- the Looney Tunes guy, man. Come oh. on. Come on. All right. So the other co-owner of the security business finds out that his partner is trying to stab him in the back, and he hires two exterminators to uh, to off his rat of a partner. Okay. So after this, we flash forward again. Ajax says that there's a gal named Nancy mm-hmm. who is his alibi, who can attest to everything that he is saying. Yes. And and prove that he does not deserve to be uh, painfully electrocuted to death. We do flashback. We see Vic working uh, in the hotel that will be 
our primary locale mm -hmm. for this film. And there, Mr. Trend, the co-owner of the business who hired the hitman, uh, hits him with a don't go back to the shop. It's like real, uh, hey, don't, don't, don't be at school on Monday. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Take a sick day. Like those kind of vibes. And uh, I, I do like how Vic Ajax is, is none the wiser. He thinks his boss is just being nice to him. Yeah, he's like giving. And then he goes in like Trend, who gives me George Costanza vibes. Mm -hmm. uh, that goes into this thing about some like higher power. And you ought to find yourself like a gal and settle down yeah. and all this shit. I would never want my boss talking to me like this. I would be very suspicious that something is wrong immediately. A funny bit after where like Vic is reading a book. It's like how to talk to girls. Yeah, I, I do like reading books like that in public. It was like serendipitous uh, choice though for reading material because immediately after he experiences love at first sight mm -hmm. as a gal outside on the street is like hit by a truck. And he's yes. like, gee whiz. That's, that's what I look for in a woman. Like an adamantium spine where she can be struck by a massive vehicle at a high speed and get back up and shake it off like nothing happened. I, I yes, no, I, I, women that can survive being hit by trucks and walk to, and you know, walk around afterwards, much better than the alternative, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't, I don't want a woman with like some, some weak little girly spine that's no. gonna like shatter at the, at the slightest, you know, tap. Like a hearty pat on the back is gonna like bend her out of proportion. Exactly. Exactly. No. No. That's no, no. that's one of the least. That's one of the least desirable traits a woman can have. Oh, and there's like another bit. This yeah. is actually where I caught onto the cartoon bullshit. Mm -hmm. Where it's like he sees her and like his tie starts flapping. Yeah, it's you very know what I mean? yeah like yeah defying gravity. Whoop, yeah. yeah, and it makes whoop. like silly cartoon noises. Better get used to those noises. I remember I was watching this on Tubi. And whenever there were silly cartoon noises, they were described exactly as they were. <laughs> silly cartoon noises? Yeah. As or like shroops? They, they were described as uh, as cartoon noises or whenever there was like car uh, whenever there was like music that was happening uh, that was supposed to indicate cartoonish things happening. It was like goofy music plays. Goofy music. Yeah, very fun. <laughs> Tubi good. watching experience. Shout out to Tubi, by the way. Shout out to Tubi. They got a great selection. I should have watched this on Tubi. I watched it on Prime, and I don't think the subtitles are that fun. Mm, that's a shame. I think, okay, as, as people who consistently have to watch things with subtitles because our hearing is shit, I think personally <laughs> they need to make the subtitle like an art form in itself. I agree. I want more creative subtitle form and syntax, you know, because it is like a literary form in a sense. Granted, you are just transcribing something, but there's still a lot of room there. Mm-hmm that you could really just throw in some artistic flourishes. Do you prefer subtitles to whenever there's like, I don't know, like a licensed song playing? Do you prefer for the subtitles to say, you know, blank music plays, or do you prefer the lyrics to be translated by the subtitles? I, I want it to show the notes. The notes, okay. okay. I want it, yeah, musical notation with the clefs and the, you know, the time signature there. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to interpret it myself. Yeah, so you yeah. just give me the raw facts, and then you'll, I will you'll make the lyrics. I will make the lyrics. I will pick the instruments being played in my head. I will compose <laughs> it on the spot. You're making it sound like you literally can't hear music. No, no, this is just I can hear it. It's just right. I don't. But your interpretation is drowning out like what's actually being played. No, no, I just want to be free to interpret it myself. Sure. No, that's. I think that's a. You deserve that, right? Yeah. I think we do as viewers. Yeah. Uh, I agree. I, I've earned that right. It's kind of a trade-off for my terrible hearing. Mm -hmm. I, I need something to sort of compensate for that loss, and my compensation is more artistic license when it comes to other people's films. Streaming services should be nurturing people's creative developments more. Instead of, instead of just being like, yeah, this is this is for the deaf. Yeah, you, I, you, I hate you, that. You, you sons of Subtitles bitches. for the hearing impaired, yeah. that kind of shit. It's like uh, very backhanded. Don't care for it. I don't yeah. even think that I don't think people who are uh, deaf or hearing impaired. Well, we are, but we are one of those things. But I don't think they would even like to like see that. Like that. It seems you can like just say closed caption exactly. English. That's it. There's That's no, all you need to say. No, no reason to make me feel stigmatized. You know. Yeah. Uh. Anyway, so yeah, uh, Vic Ajax immediately starts putting the moves on this gal. Like asks her out like seven times, rejected each time. Like, well, the book he was reading, just like any good dating book, uh, probably said to keep trying. Do not take no as an answer. In fact, 
make sure that your resolve uh, hardens. Yeah, it's always after a good the thing. Initial, uh, no, it's always a good thing when you have to like wear them down. Exactly. No, no, that's it's a good what, sign. That's what you want because that you see they're doing that on purpose as a test. Um, as a test, yeah. Yeah, to see if you truly care about them. You see, Vic Vic Ajax's flaw here was he wasn't like peacocking, you know, like the PUA thing where you like you wear some stupid extravagant yeah, outfit. Yeah. He was just wearing like his work clothes. If he had like a big feather boa, like a Hulk Hogan boa, right, or right, something, right. or like Prince, you know, purple hat thing going on, there's no way she could have said no. No, there's no like, way. Like she would be gross. There's immediately. no way. He also should have. Uh, he, he also should have uh, negged her a little Some bit. Negging, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, very missed opportunity. I should mean, have been like, oh, what? The, the negging, the the negging was uh, the negging quota was filled by Bruce Campbell almost immediately after. But this guy had a small window and he blew it. Yeah, yeah. So that's what finally uh, pushes Vic Ajak off is when uh, he sees that she is with Renato the heel, aka uh, Bruce Campbell. So she Ooh. was. So is she? Okay, sorry. So she was with the. Uh, because now it's going to get to the, the parts that I was confused about. So she was with this guy. I think like not officially. Okay, so I think he looked at her as just like a side job. Yeah. But she was infatuated with him. That's so probably it was an yeah. reciprocated love. That makes sense because she because th- they share like one scene together and it's the dinner scene and they're not even together for most of that scene. Yeah, yeah that's the point. It's yeah, a show like yeah. Bruce Campbell. Like neglecting her. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And, okay. And then he like Bruce Campbell puts a cigarette out <laughs> on the guy's hand. That was that was my first big laugh because that's that's just it's <laughs> just a funny thing to do to somebody you don't know. That you're like you just that's how you establish your dominance. Yeah. Like immediately inflict some kind of like scarring physical. Yeah, if injury. not if not negging and inflicting like ment uh, emotional pain, uh, then do what. That's not called negging. Is that just called assault? That's just battery. That's just yeah. assault and battery. Yeah, yeah. One of the two. One of the two have to be implemented. Yeah, and then there's like another really good bit where like Bruce Campbell does the finger guns and it yeah. does like the pew sound. Yeah, uh, no. I also, yeah, I like the pews that are happening when he's talking to that one girl at the bar. All the stuff with Bruce Campbell is delightful. I, I'm, I'm fine with all of that. And I guess most of this stuff was just like added later, like in the script, because he was, um, Raimi wanted him to be the lead in this. The, the Hollywood bigwigs were like, no, no, this, this, this other guy, he's on the rise. Get him instead. And then Raimi decided to just extend the role of Ronaldo, and that's why we get so much of him in this compared. Even though it isn't a whole lot, it's not nearly enough, but it's definitely more than we would have gotten otherwise. And it's a blessing, man. Between this and like Evil Dead Two, like Campbell's like facial game, probably the among the best I've ever seen. The he man knows how to can work you, every aspect of his face. He knows how to work his natural strengths. He's he's such a good face actor. Yeah, it's it's pretty great. Yeah, no, um, for sure. Anyway, so there's uh there's a storm. And the city's in chaos. We are uh, informed by a newspaper whipped at us. You know, slaps against us. It's like a 3D gimmick. Thing. Did you catch the Evil Dead reference in that newspaper? No. What was it? Uh, underneath the article that um, described the storm that was going to occur, uh, there was something like uh, uh, F- FBI closes up murder site, a, sla- a slash temporal um, space space time opening or something like that, which is, of course, referring to the events in Evil Dead 2. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Same universe. I, I guess. Pretty yeah. Cool. <laughs> we go back to sort of our initial storyline revolving uh, the two owners of the security business. Uh, the exterminators enter the man's office. Mm-hmm. He has some absurd last name. I don't recall. It's Trend. No, no, Trent was the guy who hired the hitman. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, so the other guy. Anyway, he, like, the the two hitmen, uh, Arthur, who looks and sounds like the weasels from uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Correct. And uh, Farron, who was the big beefy guy. They, they like, execute him with this very funny, like, electric, steamy zapping machine. I was wondering what this thing was supposed to be. Like, is it... Is it based on something that exterminators use, or? Oh, I have no idea. Oh. It is funny though, because they have, like that little knob where it's like rat, and yeah. then you switch it up to like to human. human, right? Yeah. And they fry this fucker. His glasses like explode as they're zapping him. It's pretty. This is like the only over-the-top violence kind of in the movie. Yeah. Like I guess there's a little bit at the end. Well, there's some murder happening throughout, but it's not the violence doesn't like hold any weight. Ever, no, really. I wanted like Evil Dead to levels of violence. That's the, the ultimate blood and the gore of... and the chopping and the hacking and right. I'm assuming this was designed to be PG-13, which kind of lightens uh, 
the type of ideas at work that happen in Evil Dead 2. Yeah, I guess this is a matter of my expectations. Right, Is right. wanting something more along those lines and instead uh, getting this. But yeah. So from across the road, uh, Mr. Trent's wife has been spying uh, on the office the whole mm-hmm. time and, and sees all these shenanigans go down. And uh, Trend has to go across to the office to sort of, like, cover his tracks. Yeah. Okay, and then we jump to a swing club where uh, Renato is having his uh, his date with Nancy. And Vic is there lingering and, and, and spying. Orbiting. Like the little creep. Beta orbiter. Beta orbiting. Like Another thing that women is. love and that you should do. And, uh, like, Vic sees Renato mistreating the new love of his life and, and steps up. He's white knighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's defending her honor, yes. this fair maiden, and then he like immediately gets his shit rocked. Uh, yeah, another like funny like pratfall is I, I don't know I don't remember if it was Bruce Campbell or somebody else who just like sends him flying uh, like through the dining room on top of like a table. Oh, it's Bruce Campbell. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he gets some air there. Yeah, in this uh, like in this scene, but also just like his character as a whole. Like mm-hmm. uh, the Renato character is just like Jim Carrey in the mask when he's wearing the mask. Yeah. Just like that, really, because he is the most over the top like character in the movie. I think. Just yeah, he's able to do your dialogue. Yeah, because he he's able to do uh, certain cartoon things that other people seem to not be able to do. No one else is able to blow uh blow smoke into the into the moving image of a dancing lady, or or anything, or create cartoon zoom uh, uh shooting sound effects whenever he arches his eyebrows and shit. He, you know what happened? He came. Out of that temporal or temporal anatomy, right? He is an extra dimensional being. Sure. With these like cartoon uh, trickster powers. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. We're going Unfortunately, with that. those aren't what the, those don't end up saving him because he, he doesn't. He, he seems to just die. He just like gets crushed by like a falling <laughs> just, fire. Yeah, escape. he hits his head. It's very indignant. And he just dies, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So then we, we jump back again to the office where a uh, trend riding high on his W, he mm-hmm. thinks he's got away. With this crime, yeah. with having his exterminators kill his conniving shitbag of a partner, right? But then he gets zapped too. Which, to me, this is the only part of the movie that's like anything like a co- a classic sort of Coen Brothers crime movie script involving you know greed and stupidity converging uh, in you know making uh, a a situation worse than it is. This is really the only part of that. It doesn't have any weight either because these characters are not really very well established we'll say no they literally only exist to like bring the exterminators into the picture exactly for the the shenanigans in the rest of the movie exactly yeah yeah uh there's like this funny line though where like the big guy's like oh you just killed the guy who hired us and then the little weasel man's like oh well maybe he'll pay us extra because you know he he killed a second person yeah no that probably wasn't gonna happen no probably not (laughs) and so we're back to the restaurant vick is He's really floundering out here, man. He's taking a massive L. He's like reciting poetry to Nancy, who was just like sitting and, and gazing at Renardo, who's like chatting up another uh, another lady at the bar. Yeah, yeah, very very bleak times for uh, Vic Ajax here. You could tell that this, I, uh, um, the idea of him reading poetry uh, to in order to try to win a woman, uh, I think it probably stems from personal experience for Mister Raimi because he uses this um, as a concept in Spider Man Two as well. Uh, he's trying to he's trying to woo MJ by reading like T.S. Eliot, if you remember. I don't remember. Oh, uh, well, he is. He is. Yes, I believe that he I does promise that. you. Did, did he do this, Sam Raimi, in real life, you think? I think it, it's come up too often for it to not be biographical. But I also could be completely just reading into it for um, no reason. I don't know. I could see it because he doesn't have, I mean, just like aesthetically, like a whole lot going for him. So if you're going to if you're going to Mac, you got to work with what you have and he is it's always always an uphill battle for people like sam raimi who is like a nerd um and he hangs out with bruce campbell who was like the handsome uh jock guy yeah and he was like the shorter sort of shyer you know nerd guy so i i can i'm almost certain that this has probably happened at least once we'll have to ask him one day absolutely yes uh and i i hope i hope that sam raimi had more success than uh his characters have but i doubt it this is probably just like his way of trying to to work through these uh, devastating memories of his. Youth. Any any good piece of art is the artist trying to work through their their uh, their failures as far as trying to get pussy. The great motivator. Exactly. Yeah. So we jump back again. Uh, Trend's wife sees the serial killer uh, moving the body, and he 
sees her seeing him yeah. and then like there's this good bit he like chugs like a fucking train i think there were like train noises and like slams into the door of like the apartment building i believe it i, I don't quite remember but there there are silly cartoon sound effects Throughout. there's like this really funny like trumpet music in the background that again sounds like something out of like the looney tunes yeah, you man. know, you were you were just enjoying these uh, cartoon sound effects. I can't. Bl- I liked it. I can't blame you. It's you know, I understand. I do. Good. Thank you. Thank you for your valid your validation. All right. So this little bit is important because it sets up like the entire second half of the film, where the exterminators are in like the apartment building, mm-hmm. just causing a a big old ruckus. But before we can get to that, we have to go back to the uh the swing club where uh there's another good bit. Where, you know, Nancy needs to pay for her half of the meal because mm-hmm. Bruce Campbell, you know, just kind of like left her with half the bill. And he's like, oh, I need $36. And Vic's like, oh, I don't have $36. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm poor. But then there's like uh, the announcer in the background is like, oh, we have a dance contest. The winner gets $36. You know, Yeah, and then it transitions from them doing the dance contest to them in the back doing the dishes yeah, to you pay think, off $36. You think they're going to win. Exactly. But they don't. Hey man, nobody, nobody here is saying that there is not good gags in this movie. There are. However, I just I'm not totally convinced that everything sort of uh, combines in such a way that the the end product is uh, works. I'll I'm not say. disputing that. I'm just saying I don't need it to be coherent. Fair. Because I just like bits. Yeah. I like funny little bits, and if you have enough of those, that's equivalent to a good plot. For me, there's an exchange system Interesting, okay. Yeah, where I'm willing to sacrifice on tonal coherence or quality filmmaking if you can, like, reach, like, a 20 yucks level. If you give me 20 good yucks, that is equivalent to, like, a solid plot line. No, I mean, uh, (laughs) I I, I understand that. That's that's one of my... That does not make it a good movie, but it does make it a good watch. Sure. Maybe and I'll take I don't that. know. Maybe the the batting average, as far as the bits are concerned, are just not as high for me as they are for you. Because I generally agree. Like if it's a if it's a comedy, which this movie clearly primarily is, then jokes are the most important thing. Like everything from like plot to characters, that's all like frosting on the cake, essentially. But eh, I don't know. I'm just a a silly little boy, and I like silly little sounds, sounds, <laughs> little faces, and silly little faces. Yeah, it's a little music. That's all I need. It's a little boop, 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 you know, trumpet. You know. All right, you're selling me here. Yeah, I might switch allegiances soon. We'll see. And and we're back. We're back. So, uh, Farron has now laid siege to uh, the now widow Miss Trend, and there's another funny little noise. He, she stabs him in the nose with a fork, mm-hmm. and it squeaks. It squeaks like a little clown nose. And I was squeaking. I was like, ah. Man, <laughs> that's how I that's how I laugh. Oh, and there's another bit straight out of fucking Tom and Jerry. This is just me listing bits I like now. Yes, that's that's the show. Well, because this is the rest of the movie. Yeah, it's just little bits. It's just he, bits. He, she like smacks him with a frying pan, and then he like flies backwards into a wall where they have bowling balls. Yeah, the, and then the, the bowling balls flop on his fucking head. Yeah, that's a. They did not go far bit. enough here because they should have had little birds flying around his head. You're right. But maybe that's too obvious. Maybe the due to budget constraints they couldn't quite do that i I realize now that maybe me just listing bits is not quality podcasting so we'll we'll just skip ahead yeah let's Uh, yeah uh farron causes some chaos uh he throws a guy out of a window uh he attempts to kidnap the wife right actually yeah like the next 20 minutes are just him trying to like kidnap this this poor widow uh, and being constantly foiled uh there's a scene she also disappears kind of through from the movie uh, where, where, uh, out of the blue, sort of. No, oh, okay. So first, Vic is like in Nancy's room. A bond is developing here because he's the only person in this movie who has been nice to her mm-hmm. and hasn't like brutally dumped her or hit her with a car. Yes. And he spills his guts, not knowing that the little weasel Arthur has her like kidnapped and is holding her hostage. Yeah. And he just he like talks in her voice, uh, responding to everything that Vic says. Right, so as this is going on, you know, you've got the two exterminators causing their own brands of ruckus at different points. Trend, the Mrs. Trend eventually escapes and, like, ends up in a box and is stuffed in, like, a back of a moving truck and then disappears, which is very strange. She's gone. Yeah, she's she's out. That's one plot which, string chopped. Sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which, you know, shows sort of the... Uh, 
the care that's 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 put into these uh, these characters here. Right. So after that, after Mrs. Trent has escaped, uh, Nancy gets away from Arthur and flees in a car, pursued by the devious duo. And uh, Vic is not far behind them. Like a, a kindly old cop lends him his car to like join in this car chase. Is it a cop or is it just some guy? I don't remember. I thought it was a cop. I thought it was just some guy. It may have been just some guy. Yeah. Why he he was acting too nicely to be a cop. True. I guess. True. And why it was just like a regular car. It wasn't a cop car or anything like I that. I could have sworn it was a cop car. Dude, I don't know. <laughs> it it doesn't matter. It does not. He, it's really matter. the important thing is Vic now has a car. Everyone is in cars and There's they're chasing chase. after each other. Yes. You got some explosions. You got some like James Bond esque brawling on like the tops of vehicles. Another like oh no, this is this is speed. This is a speed esque thing. Where someone like gets totally fucking annihilated by like an overpass. Oh yes, that was pretty good. Anyway, this the cars crash. One is like teetering over a bridge. Nancy is inside. Mm. There's a final standoff between uh, Arthur and Farron. And Bluto. Who? Bluto. And they're like dueling with scrap metal. Yeah, I don't know. Eventually, Vic somehow knocks the fucker off the bridge, and uh, a car falls on top of him, and he finally dies. Presumably After several near deaths, uh, he is confirmed dead it turns out many bowling balls are not enough to do the job but a single car can neutralize them you know they're on the bridge they're alone finally safe and sound they admit their feelings for each other mm-hmm. and then i must have like blinked and missed something here because like something must have happened here that i missed because we jump back ahead or we jump back to vic like in the electric chair, yeah. With Nancy like arriving to like proclaim his innocence, who at this point is a nun, yeah, or was about to take her vow of silence, and is like, oh, uh, something happened, and then you were gone, and I looked for you, and then I couldn't find you, and I became a nun. It makes absolutely no sense. Did I did I like miss something on the bridge, well, or one no, of them like was, disappears? It cuts from the bridge. Uh, yeah, she thought, I guess, that he died. Like, I guess she just assumed that he fell into the water and died. No, they, they like, talk on the bridge. Yeah, but I like think, doesn't, spill he also their... ju- doesn't he fall in afterwards or something? Maybe. That might be a yeah, part and that then, I missed. But because I, one thing that is described is that apparently she, uh, after the events that happened, uh, just decided to wander, and then she somehow wandered into a nunnery, and that's how she ended up linking up with the nuns. And I suppose it must have been a long time for her to realize that uh, that he is not dead and, in fact, is on death row. Yeah, this all seems to happen very quickly. Yes. Like, his trial must have taken, like, two days. And then right. they um, go to execute him. Unless she just didn't realize that he was alive for that much longer. Like, it could have, this could have been, like, he could have been, like, in prison. Uh, for a while. For, like, a while. Yeah. Like, for a year or two, maybe. The, the nuns break their, like... They're, they're silent nuns who've yeah. taken a vow of silence, yeah. and they, they break this 40-year vow of silence to save Vic, yes. uh, disgracing themselves and soiling themselves in the eyes of the Lord, but allowing him. our two characters to uh, marry and have right. a happy ending. Happy for Vic. I'm not so sure about uh, about Nancy, whether she wants this, because these two characters, since they're not really characters, they don't they don't have much chemistry, I suppose. Would you Would you agree with that? Oh no, I would agree. Yeah, like I think it all goes back. If we're gonna psychoanalyze this, yeah, that Vic was the only person who's ever been nice to Nancy. Yeah, because even in the last shot, she looks annoyed. Yeah, and she's he like, is. Oh, she likes me. He's oh, grinning like a me. fucking moron. Yeah, yeah. like a, like a schoolboy, and she is just like looking at it. like <laughs> it's like a shotgun wedding scenario is what it looks like. So this is just like a relationship born out of the trauma of being like just hunted. like in speed. Hunted by, like, deranged killers. Yeah, I don't know. Like, two or three years down the line, I could see Nancy murdering him in his sleep to just get out of this get out of this marriage. That would be quite ironic in yeah. some ways, yeah. But that that's the plot of Crime Wave, in a nutshell. Oh, yeah, 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 all right. Like you mentioned at the beginning of the film, the main appeal of Crime Wave isn't necessarily the film itself. Mm-hmm. It is the behind-the-scenes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. No, no, yeah. The, the entire project uh, is... A disaster. That's probably why um, we're somewhat confused by certain events in the plot. Why certain characters are just dropped. This was meant to be, and this was supposed to be the Sam Raimi's foray into studio filmmaking. Uh, he went straight from the Evil Dead 
which due in no small part to Stephen King endorsing the original Evil Dead, became a huge success in the midnight movie circuit. And, of course, that got the attention of uh, Hollywood producers. And they end, uh, Sam Raimi ended up getting business with uh, get, get, going into business with Embassy Pictures, which is a modest studio that existed at the time that have done things like The Graduate or what was that? The, what was the one movie that you liked? Cardinal Knowledge. Cardinal Knowledge. Yeah. The producers. It. They, yeah. Real highbrow stuff. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. For the well, but also things like Phantasm and shit like oh, that. Okay. You know. Yeah. So you know, but, but successful movies. After this movie, uh, Embassy Pictures ceases to exist and is uh, dissolved, and its assets are absorbed by Coca Cola and Dino De Laurentiis. So that tells you exactly what the what the outcome of this movie ended up being. Oh, can we can we digress really quick? Sure. So Coca-Cola, if you remember, it had a hand in like Ishtar, the production yes, of Ishtar. Yes. Do you think they used the infrastructure that they got when they purchased uh Embassy Pictures? To later, like, put those resources to use in Ishtar. I think so. Okay. It, the, the, because it lines up. So Ishtar arose from the ashes of Crime Wave. In some ways, yes. In some ways, yes. Fascinating. Because, uh, yeah, Ishtar was 87. Uh, Crime Wave was 85. Uh, 87, I believe, is the same year that um, Evil Dead 2 uh, and Raising Arizona comes out, actually, I think. So what happens is Sam Raimi at this point is 22. Uh, for whatever reason, the executives uh, for Embassy Pictures decides to approve $2.5 million and sends him on his merry way over to Detroit with very little supervision uh, in order to get this thing done. And he has a, a mix of his people, like his buddies and stuff, and you know people from the studio system, people from the unions and stuff, uh, people he's not used to dealing with, like actual like serious professionals. He can't fuck around like he did in the Evil Dead, just like a you know just spray a bunch of fucking goo on top of actors and 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 just throw the camera around and shit, which is essentially how the Evil Dead was made. There was all sorts of stunts that were done, sort of like under the radar, that were dangerous. And they end up getting sued for this type of stuff. Uh, the extra, the, everything was cold. All the interior um, stuff was shot in a warehouse that was like sub-zero degree temperatures in Detroit. Um, and nobody wanted to be an extra. So they had like the crew doubling up and being extras as well. And fucking the pyrotechnics done in that final uh, car chase sequence were also done irresponsibly and dangerously and ended up like damaging the infrastructure of the city for a oh little God. bit. It's, it's there's uh, yeah, there's like a just a very large amount of stories like that uh, about throughout the production of this movie. Um Bruce Campbell, ever the uh team player. Yes. The best way to ever play, the yeah. team player is not only in this movie, but he ends up absorbing the duties of the, I, I believe, the second unit director because he is also fired. There's a few people that are fired or quit for various reasons. One of one of which was for a guy that had like a gun somewhere. I, I, I don't remember the specific details of that, but he's arrested. Uh, and because of that, uh, Bruce Campbell, despite having absolutely no experience in the matter he he's he does he he does all the shots that need to be shot and many of them are sort of like these cutaways and close-ups of people's hands so if you see anyone uh, if you see any close hands in this movie it's probably bruce campbell baby add hand model to uh, his list of talents exactly and he would he would still do other things like this because he was denied a leading man for Raimi's movie after Evil Dead 2, which was Dark Man, he was denied leading man status for that as well. And instead, he decided to uh, work in the sound department and <laughs> and did some ADR work on on uh, on Dark Man as well. So, truly a jack of all trades. You got to respect. What a it. beautiful man! Beautiful like coming man. in clutch for a friend like that. Exactly. Exactly. Who is not fighting for you nearly hard enough? I don't think. Yeah, you this could say seem that. Like a reciprocal relationship between Raimi and Campbell. I wouldn't say that Raimi is not fighting for Campbell because Raimi. I mean, he brings him back for Evil Dead too, and okay. you know that that's what essentially makes him the star. And he brings him again for Army of Darkness. He tries. He tries to bring him for Dark Man, but he he makes uh, Bruce Campbell a leading man in a in in a studio finance Hollywood production. Who ends up in Dark Man? Liam Neeson. That's what I thought. Yes. I get that confused with like, is there a movie called Dark City? 
There is. Okay. That's an Alex Proyas movie, but I don't remember who's in it. Oh, okay. That's like a, I think that's like a Matrix-inspired uh, movie. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. But yeah, no. Um, the movie is in pretty much uh, every way it went over budget. It's um, gets chopped up in post by the studio. The studio does not let any of the people that are uh, that are either related to Sam Raimi or Sam Raimi himself. They don't let them actually have any more um, goes at the reels that already exist. And essentially, they decide to dump the movie. They decide to dump it in theaters in Alaska and Kansas. Seven total. Theaters. Seven total theaters. So they pour what, like three million dollars in this movie? And at the yes. end of it, they're just like so pissed off. <laughs> they're because, just like, yeah, yeah. send it to fucking Alaska. Yeah. yeah. The, and the only reason, because they were just going to shelve the thing entirely, just cut their losses. But the HBO, I guess, had, uh, there was a contract with them that, that it needed to be released theatrically for at least an amount of time. So legally, they had to release it. So they just released it in some fucking nowheresville, Alaska. And... Yeah, it made up like five thousand dollars. The movie went over budget, and it was like three million. So do the math there. Legendary Pictures is, crumbles the very next year, essentially. Damn. Yeah, that's brutal. And the the only reason that Sam Raimi is probably allowed to direct again so soon is because uh, of Stephen King, who was working with Dino De Laurentiis for Maximum Overdrive, and he knew that the script for the new the new version of Evil Dead was circulating, so he told him specifically to have a sit-down with Sam Raimi and to essentially uh, hear him out. And he did, and history was made. That is absolutely insane yes. that he bounced back so quickly. There's no, yes. like, exile there. No. Because it's not just like, oh, he made a movie and it just happened to fail. No. It's like he failed at making a movie. He did. He did everything wrong. He bankrupted an entire studio with his failures. He destroyed part of a, a major metropolitan city. He, <laughs> if stories are to be believed, he almost killed an old man in in like a retirement community. He also almost killed the, the fucking uh, the, the guy who plays Farron because you know that bit where they're running through like the various doors. And, yeah, it was a good bit. Yeah, yeah, and then he's trying to run as the as the door as the doorways are like like falling toppling, like dominoes. Like, yeah, yeah, um, like dominoes. Yeah. Uh, I guess the door they, they were all heavier and falling way faster than expected and this guy is almost this guy is like crushed. Oh my <laughs> but god. But thankfully he's got he's got mass on him. He's his got side. mass on him. Yeah. If it, if this happened to the other guy. It'll be like, you know, like in the cartoon when they're run over and yeah. their body is just like entirely like flattened, you know, exactly. like paper thin. Exactly. But then they like get up and they're like, you know, just like one dimensional and, and well, right, which but, Speaking of Roger Rabbit, but yeah. that does not happen in real life. No, it does so not. So they would just they would just be dead. They would probably. just be, which is not quite as funny, honestly. One of my favorite behind the scenes bits were yep. like the hotel they were filming in front of was like what it was like an old person home. Yes, like a and a, like they're shooting out like in front of this place every night, making like a terrible ruckus. Mm -hmm. And then apparently, finally, one night, like a glass bottle falls and attracts yeah. their attention. And inside of it was a note yeah. that was just like, uh, you do this every night. I can't sleep. I'm dying. You're yeah. killing me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they're making such a ruckus. And I didn't know that you could do like this kind of shit when there's residential communities like right there. Because well, it's Detroit. They, be, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> because they had these uh, huge like wind machines come in from fucking Florida uh, to simulate the storm that is happening in this movie. And uh, yeah, yeah, I can't. <laughs> like this poor woman is uh, telling the crew that sh that they're literally killing her by preventing her from sleeping uh, <laughs> because they're making the, their movie that would be shelved anyway. I wonder what ever happened to her. I I hope she's. Well, well, she's probably she's probably she's very dead. Probably passed. But I on. hope she died of like natural causes, peacefully, surrounded by family. I hope and, so as well. And not, I don't know, de death death via exhaustion. I hope everyone that's involved in this alone. movie di ha has died or will die peacefully, um, without any kind of complications. That's very nice of you to say. Yes, yes, I know. <laughs> it's very gracious of me, indeed. Um, 
Yeah, no, uh, some other good bits. Let's see some other stories. Oh, we um, uh, <laughs> just le- uh, just adding to the fucking cornucopia of disasters that a couple of the actors are coke or cokeheads, essentially coke fiends. Um, one of them being Lou- Louise Lazar, formerly mentioned, um, who fires her makeup artist like a day into production, ends up doing her own makeup and uh. And essentially looks like a clown. The, the the crew, the cast and crew, are laughing at her behind her back because because of this. The other guy who plays uh, the other goon, um, the 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 weasel, the weasel Arthur. guy, yeah, Arthur. Um, he also was big in coke, destroyed his hotel room, and said that the room was being haunted by the spirit of his wife's ex boyfriend or something. So if all these tales are to be believed. Then uh, the supernatural. This this movie was inc- uh, was was said to be failure because uh, the, the even the supernatural entities that existed in that room were against the production of this movie. They they were very upset on uh, about their portrayal in the original Evil Dead. So they had beef with Sam Raimi, mm. and they were like, mm-hmm. "You you think we're all menaces? You want to portray us this way? We'll show you what a fucking menace looks like." Yeah, we're, Evil we're Dead. We're gonna haunt the the, the lighting fixtures in this guy's uh, hotel room. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. So calling something Evil Dead is probably pretty loaded because it implies that um, any spirits are probably not good and bad and evil. Yeah, you can't generalize spirits like that. No, there right. are some good ones out there. There are. There are. Casper the Friendly Ghost. Uh, friendly is right there in his name. I think it's about time that the dead. Uh, push back against these harmful stereotypes the dead yeah they need to there's a redemption arc like the the ghost army in lord of the rings yes yes who who redeemed themselves and are finally able to go to the afterlife in peace coming coming soon uh to a theater near you uh the nice dead all right let's see oh another more explosive shenanigans uh you recall that they needed the water under the bridge in that final oh, yeah. scene, you know, mm-hmm. to be like actually water and not frozen over. Mm-hmm. But you're filming again in Detroit uh, in, in fucking winter in sub-zero temperatures. Mm-hmm. So they needed to break up the ice and they just used dynamite, I yeah. guess. Uh, I wonder how much of this, this $3 million was allotted to like the dynamite budget. I... <laughs> who knows, man? Who Who lit the dynamite? Who on this set do you think is like... Do you need a license to use dynamite? Can anyone just... Well, just like any job that's completely falling apart... Bruce Campbell just did it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, any kind of, like, uh, job titles just meant absolutely jack shit. And everyone was just doing whatever. So it's very possible that Bruce Campbell himself was uh, was pushing on the comically large... Uh, what do you call that? Oh, the detonator? Yeah, the detonator. Yeah, yeah it could have. He could have been the, the one doing that. The Acme detonator. Except <laughs> blow up the Acme dynamite. Exactly. And on the in the same scene, uh, the scene where Ajax is fighting uh, Farron, um, with the uh, like with the pieces of the car, like the. It's like pieces of the car, but then also pieces of like the barricade from the bridge. Right, right. So just like pieces of metal, and, and there's like, like sparks impaled, flying and oh, stuff. The sparks. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So. The way that the sparks flew, because they wanted it to do that, you know, because it would look good on film and stuff, is they just, like, attached car batteries to it, and people were getting shocked left and right. Frankly, it's a miracle that nobody died. <laughs> like, this this thing, I, I, you, you and I are the same page here. Uh, normally, we're pr- pretty much completely against this, uh, like, studios impeding on the, the sort like of... artistic process Yeah, the artistic of process of a director. Yeah. But films are also collaborative, and sometimes they have a lot of money flying around, you know? And also, you just can't have people dying yeah. on your fucking set, or exactly. almost dying. Exactly. Yeah. That's why these unions exist. Okay, maybe once, maybe once, you know, accidents happen. Sure. Uh, twice, you know, you get a little rowdy, maybe... Take take a couple weeks off, re- readjust. Yeah, but by by the third near death experience, maybe uh, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, you, maybe you this take is some what... like OSHA classes or something. Yeah, clearly something is is going wrong here. Something is amiss. May hey, maybe that's why uh, Sam Raimi was friends with John Landis <laughs> because of their sheer disinterest in uh, in cast and crew not dying. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, 
watching these these two Campbell films back to back. I've been singing his praises this whole episode, mm-hmm. and like questioning why he wasn't given like leading man status yeah. because he's stunningly handsome. Correct. Great actor, mm-hmm. and apparently just like a really great guy behind the scenes. And so, Seems sort of like reading in to like the production history of this film sort of clarifies why he was never given that shot and it boils down like animosity between him and hollywood bigwigs yeah where like he was pissed off that like he and Raimi were cut out of like the editing process and went head to head with the execs uh who called him like uh, on record calling him like a jackass i think asshole or asshole was the terminology some some variation of ass yeah and, you know, this clearly, like, rubbed him the wrong way, too. Sure. So, I wonder, I thought he was being, like, hamstrung, you know, from the inside. People, like, blocking him from these roles. Mm-hmm. But maybe he just didn't want him. Like, maybe he was cool just popping up, like, bit parts in Coen Brothers films and, like, Raimi films. I think it's possible. I mean, I think before Crime Wave, it's very clear that he wanted to break in, break out in a big way. Uh, he was, like, in that soap opera that would show up in the far- on on a TV set in Fargo, but otherwise there's no footage of that he was in. Uh, that was a real soap opera? That was a real that soap opera. That wasn't just made for Fargo? That was not made for Fargo. That was a real soap opera starring Bruce Campbell that, again, there is quite literally no footage of that exists, which shows about its cultural relevance, uh, his lasting cultural relevance. Um, but, but yeah, no, uh, I guess the executive that called him an asshole was, like a rep, uh, was, an, ex- was an executive... That was working for one of the banks that f- was financing the movie, and because it went over budget, legally they had to have somebody over there, like overseeing the whole thing. But yeah, no, the, I guess the the real issue is is that they shouldn't have given a fucking twenty two year old this much control on the get go. They clearly were just sort of impressed by what he was able to do with the Evil Dead. And thought that that automatically meant that he knew about the ins and outs of uh, of like professional movie making business. Yeah. No, this was a guy who was just like you said, just throwing goop on people in a cabin. Yeah. In some woods. You can't just give this guy like seven sticks of dynamite and free run over like a major city. No. Nothing good's <laughs> gonna come from that. No, like, it's not. You gotta you gotta ease him into this. Make him like a key grip. You know, make him do lighting on a big budget. You know, suss it out mm-hmm. before uh, yeah, like thrusting him into the spotlight. See, like, yeah. how many other directors are doing shit like this at 22? It's very, very rare. And I think this is probably one of the reasons why. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, this is, I guess, the, the sort of... this is. This is sort of the remote possibility, uh, the dark underbelly of what could happen when you are you are sort of just you just sort of fall into success, and you do, you kind of skip the process that most other people that find success have to take, uh, of of you know uh, when it comes to movie production and such. Yeah, well, I'm glad he got it sorted out. Yeah, everyone uh, bounced back from this just fine. Like yeah. even. Even the nobody uh, actors, they still got work afterwards. They're doing fine. Um, Bruce Campbell, obviously. Sam Raimi and the Coen brothers uh, like bounced back pretty much immediately. Um, so what was learned here? If Stephen King uh, cuts you, if he likes you out, yeah, yeah, there's nothing you can't bounce back from. That's probably you, the case. You can, you can almost rack up a body count on a film, mm-hmm. uh, but eventually you know, you'll, you'll be directing Spider-Man. And had he, yeah, had he actually racked up a body count, um, he pr- he probably would have maybe been out of commission for a few more years. But he probably still would have <laughs> would have had less trouble making a movie than Elaine May had. Oh yeah, it was the eighties. Yeah, it's like a different time. Exactly. What happened to John Landis? Did he keep? Uh, did he get work after he after the incident? Twilight Zone incident? Yeah. I I think so. I don't remember what. Uh, I know his uh, his shitty uh, son, um, Max know. Landis. Yeah, Max Landis is he's still he's still around doing doing shit, racking for some up uh, assault charges. So allow me to reiterate the box office here, because like you said, seven theaters, five thousand one hundred one dollars is its worldwide and domestic gross. It has about a fifty percent of Rotten Tomatoes. Doesn't seem like it's really gained much traction as far as cult movies are concerned. Now. I'm going to ask you, and then I'm going to respond. Do you think it deserved this? No. Hard, this is a tougher no. one. 
You no, don't think so? I liked it. I think that had you not had you personally yeah. had this been released like if the, if the studio didn't have like such a vendetta with yeah. this film and actually gave it a shot, I think it would have been moderately successful I because just, it does have its moments. It is it is amusing. It's good for a chuckle. Uh Maybe not as entertaining as what happened when the cameras were off. Right. But it was a good... I enjoyed it in the moment. I don't know if I ever need to revisit it. <laughs> but for the, the, the tight hour and 20 minutes that I I was basking in it, I had a good time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not the worst watch in the world. I don't think it's good. Um, however, there's a lot of creativity on display. Because uh, Raimi... I mean, he pull he pulls out a lot of the tricks and stuff that he would pull out for Evil Dead Two, just in a context that doesn't quite work in the same way. Uh, there's clearly a lot of energy put in everything. This is not one that was uh, just shat out by some hack. Like this is clearly the work of people who care and are are good at what they do. But it almost even more so than the Evil Dead and Blood Simple, and this has been pointed out by others. This looks like it could have been a a first time student movie. Um, in my opinion, not because it looks cheap, actually looks quite expensive, just in its sort of unbridled energy, but like lack of any sort of uh, technical form. Is, I get that. Yeah, it's, it is wildly like inconsistent in it that is. regard. Like very early on, it like starts out maybe doing like a pastiche of like old noir movies, right? But it doesn't but commit that's, to that like, at all. Very quickly abandoned in favor of just like rampant slapstick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and There's not, like a little bit of horror too. Not touched upon again. Yeah, you, like you expect just from like the premise of oh, two murderers for hire are terrorizing a hotel. Uh, you, I don't know. You, you expect them to lean a little bit more into the horror aspect. Yeah, it doesn't but, lean enough into that for sure. No, it's just like just a hodgepodge. It's also all supposed to be. Ro- it's also it's also supposed to. I think they're they want us to buy into the romance as well because I mean that's what it ends on essentially. Yeah. Uh, that's what the the uh, what the studio mandated like um, bookends essentially focuses on, and that doesn't work either for reasons already stated. So, and yeah, like you said, the all the stuff that isn't the the, the screwball comedy antics just sort of falls flat, which is unfortunate and not really the case in future entries from the Coens or Sam Raimi that sort of borrow similar elements. Because a lot, a lot of movies in both their discographies does borrow similar ele- uh, elements in the future. Uh, not just Evil Dead Two, but uh, Raising Arizona, the the Hudsuck, the Hudsucker po- Proxy. All these movies are sort of correcting what happened here in some fashion or another. I don't know if I would ever recommend it. It is an interesting oddity, and I think maybe on that level, especially with all the context in mind, it's worth a watch. Um, otherwise, eh. Kind of a dud for me, but that's just my opinion. I also don't oh. like the performances of anyone except for Bruce Campbell. Like I said, I I think the uh, the two goons are sometimes entertaining, but are just oh like they're always at eleven at all times, and that gets so exhausting because you see so much of them in this movie after they're introduced. Yeah, you know, like with their with their fucking voices and their energy levels. It's just always they're silly little faces. Yeah, always they're making silly. Always little faces. mugging with Evil Dead Two. You have like you have Bruce Campbell doing all that, like the mugging and stuff. Everything else like is over the top and all that, but it's uh, it's more horrific than it is comedic. Um, and then you have Bruce Campbell himself, um, who is delivering a brilliant central comedic performance. All the supporting the few supporting characters that exist in there are also pretty normal. It just I don't know what the exact like scientific sort of formula is, but Evil Dead Evil Dead Two just is just infinitely more successful with a similar sort of mishmash of tones than this one is. I think it's because Evil Dead 2 fully commits. There's none of like this like attempt to, to integrate these other influences. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the first 40 minutes of Evil Dead 2 is just like, I don't know, like Eli Roth doing like the Three Stooges. Yes. Just like poor Bruce Campbell being run through like a, a, a fucking meat grinder. Mm-hmm. And it does not let up at any point. It's just him smashing 8,000 plates on his head. Chopping off his own hand. Yeah. Decapitating uh, his his girlfriend's demonically possessed body. Yeah. Right? And that that's it. It's that uninterrupted. 
right. for 40 minutes. And then they introduce the other characters and things kind of calm down. But it yeah. stays like firmly rooted in, oh, this is just like a gratuitous horror movie. Right, right, right. I, yeah, I think it was just a, too, a mishmash or too much. It was just trying to do too much. Cause especially with uh, the Raimi quote that I said at the beginning, uh, that's very clear that he was literally just trying to do everything. Uh, that is something like a 22-year-old would set out for. Exactly. Like they don't it's know like, their limitations yet. I'm going to make flying. a movie that does everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's this, like, is, this, is gonna, this is the next fucking Citizen Kane I've got here. Hey, I mean, Orson Welles was 25 when he made Citizen Kane. Oh. So, but that's a very, don't look so discouraged. As we, as we have just witnessed today, very rare for that to ever be a successful formula. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, it's like a once-in-a-lifetime type thing, so don't worry too much. No, but uh, yeah, yeah, because with other movies like this, you have like Roger Rabbit, and you also, uh, we, we, we talked about The Mask as well as a comparative thing. It's sort of this one thing and then this other thing. And then you, uh, even though they are diametrically opposed, you know, the, these cartoon antics and like sort of dark noir, um, though both those movies more successfully uh, commit to it and deliver it in a way that is coherent and makes sense. Like with Roger Rabbit, the noir stuff works just as much as the comedy stuff, which is not the case here. Yeah. And yeah, no, overall, it's just uh, not, it, it's not the. Not worth the sum of its parts, which is unfortunate. Yeah, right on. So I guess, uh, yeah, in conclusion, watch Roger Rabbit instead. Yeah. Not enough people watching Roger Rabbit these days. That's true. That's uh, true. That's watch the, the Mask. Yeah. Watch Able Dead too. Mask as one of the best dog actors, of course. Uh, mm, yes, Odie. That I've ever seen on film. Yeah, one of my favorite dog actors, Odie. Yeah, no, no. Uh... Watch The Mask too. Uh, Don't watch Sunday starring, Mask. Starring uh, Jamie, Jam- Jamie Kennedy. No, uh, I, I, I'm going to put my foot down and say that this movie is better than Son of the Mask because it does not have Jamie Kennedy. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you take what you can get, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anyway, guys, that was the Schlock Doctrine. We have been Nick and Andrew. That we have. Uh, hit, hit up the Instagram, mm-hmm. Schlock Doctrine, Facebook, Schlock Doctrine. Smash that like button. Smash the like. Smash the shares. Please, please, please. And most importantly, have a smashing night. Have a smashing night. All right. Ciao. Cheers.